Our scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. If you're using a Bible from the back, it is on page 976. Apostle Paul continues, inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaking of the how and the why of the gospel. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. All right, church, it's good to see you this morning. Um, I am uh, want to say up front, you know, it's such a privilege. It's the greatest privilege, certainly, of my life to be able to stand up and preach the gospel on a consistent basis. And it is, I uh, hope, a privilege for you all to listen to God's Word preached on a consistent basis. What a life-giving, nourishing thing that is. Before we even get started this morning, I want to encourage you that if you're here this morning and you're, you're not even sure whether or not you're a Christian, whether or not you're saved, you don't, you don't know really what your spiritual condition is, that you would just prayerfully consider your heart this morning. And my prayer for you out, uh, at the outset of this message is that in somebody's life this morning... Somebody will be gripped by the gospel in a way they've never been gripped before. And, and, and you will experience converting grace this morning in your chair. You know, that happens. It doesn't happen as much as we would like it to happen. But I want you to pray with me as we begin this sermon that it would happen this morning for someone. Uh, what, what an awesome thing that would be. All right. So we're going to dig into this text. And so I want you to get your Bible out, get it open, get it on your lap. We're going to literally go through this phrase by phrase. And we're going to try to cut this apart and look at and turn it over and look at it from every angle we can so that we can understand these two verses. This is an incredible portion of Scripture. I feel like I say that every week. And I think part of the reason why I say that every week is because I just love the Bible so much. And every time I open the Bible, I'm amazed by what uh, power there is there, what life. And and so, and, and this morning's text is no different. And in a way, this is a special text. Uh, We know it well, for by grace you have been saved through faith. I mean, it's a very, very well-known text. But uh, let's not let the familiarity of this text um, cause us to, for it to lose its power on us, okay? And so we're going to pray this morning and ask for God to come and really move and speak into some hearts this morning. So if that's you, I, I pray that everybody would open their heart this morning to receive God's word in a fresh way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And and we do pray for a fresh working of your spirit, recognizing that we're in great need of it. We need new perspective. If we've been a Christian for 50 years or five minutes, we need to be refreshed by your word. We need to be instructed. Uh, Some of us need to be corrected in our thinking. And some of us need to be uh, moved along. And we need to be provoked in our heart and in our spirit to love you with all of our heart mind, soul, and strength. Lord, we pray that you would send forth your spirit upon our church and that there would be a move of God, that there would be 
one, two, three, a handful of individuals that would experience converting grace this morning, that you would come sovereignly in the power of your spirit. Here we are preaching about your sovereign spirit in salvation. And so we come to you this morning with confidence, the very confidence that we hang our, ourselves on in this text, that we, that we put all of our weight on in this text, is, is the very confidence that we have to implore you, O oh God, to move on behalf of sinners this morning and open hearts afresh that they may see and feel and know your grace for the first time. Surely there are people here in this room this morning that need a, 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 an encounter with you and your grace for the first time in, in their life. And we pray that you would make that happen this morning for your glory. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray that you would bless the preaching and now the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this year, the uh, Magna Carta will turn 800 years old. I don't know if how well you have remembered your history, but the Magna Carta was uh, established in 1215 under King John and was the great charter of freedom for the Western world. It became part of the English political life, and it contained some of the most basic principles of law and liberty. It promised protection of church rights, uh, protection from illegal imprisonment. It gave people access to swift justice. And in a very real sense, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, is what I would call the Magna Carta of salvation. It encapsulates the great sweeping truths of our salvation, grace, and faith. You know, there are just some passages in the Bible that just seem to kind of sum it all up. I mean, everything seems to be right there. You have it all at your disposal. And this is one of those texts, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, is that. These verses contain the fundamental principles of our faith. Uh, It's the Magna Carta, as I said, of our salvation. Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan, said this about it. He said, these words are one of the great forts of Protestant doctrine. Lloyd-Jones says this, he says, here in this passage, we have the whole foundation of our position and standing as Christians. In these verses, what Paul is doing is he is elaborating on salvation by inserting now into the text uh, two provocative words, faith and works. And it's interesting, I say provocative because those words seem to be kind of You're right, not really compatible, faith and works. And he introduces that to the discussion. First, he emphasizes how salvation is a gift, and then he'll tell us that we were saved for good works. So he throws both of those things in there. Now, if we're going to understand the biblical doctrine of salvation, we have to understand these verses. And in fact, I would argue that if if you, want to, if you want to experience salvation, you first have to start with understanding these truths. And then if you understand these truths and you come to experience them, then you're saved. You're a Christian. See, being a Christian is actually the embodiment of this text. It is, it is this text being worked out in your own heart and life. And if that has happened to you, then you're a Christian this morning. So this is a good message for you to pay attention, particularly if you're not a Christian because we're explaining what it means to become a Christian. I mean, this is like Salvation 101, all right? But it's also for the maturest of believers. Well, last week we saw in the, that the Bible is crystal clear about the wickedness of mankind. It refuses to whitewash the situation as that would only lead to superficial solutions. Instead, the Bible gives us a faithful portrayal of man 
indicating that we are enslaved to three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And because of that bondage, Paul says we are spiritually dead and we're under the wrath of God. In other words, the situation is quite dire. Left to ourselves, we are hopeless unless, unless God steps in and he does something. And then we come to verse 4 that says, but God. This incredible move of God that while we're in the height of our spiritual darkness, God decides to make a move. And when he moves upon us, it says God being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive. And so what it means is that finally we have real hope. There's real hope for dead people like you and me. There's no hope for a dead person physically. But Christianity says if you're dead spiritually, there's hope for you. It's an incredible message. And what we saw is that God is the creator of new life. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead raises sinners to life. When a man is saved, he's given new life. To be saved is to be resurrected spiritually and to be recreated. And what we'll see today is that from start to finish, our salvation is a gift of God. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. It is a God-glorifying text. So I want to help you understand Paul's teaching on the doctrine of salvation. And to do that, I want to give you five statements. Five statements. Number one, we are saved by grace. Paul says it. This is his very first words. For by grace you have been saved. Now let's just camp there for a few minutes. There's enough in those words to occupy us for a long time. A long time. For by grace you have been saved. The word grace, notice, is front-loaded at the beginning of this sentence to show its significance. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, uh, if it's the Magna Carta of salvation, then the first great principle of this Magna Carta or charter is the word grace. The word grace is so prevalent in the New Testament that it occurs over 150 times. And Paul uses it himself 120 times. So Paul loved grace. What is grace? Well, let me give you several sort of definitions. I want to kind of come at it from different directions to help you understand it. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Or you've seen the acronym G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's been helpful for some people. I like to say this, grace is everything good, loving, and kind that God does for undeserving sinners. Everything. And then Tully and Chavidjan, as I said last week, says grace is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. That's also a very helpful way to think about it. But let's end with, a, let me end with Packer's definition. Jim Packer puts it this way. The grace of God is love freely shown toward guilty sinners contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their demerit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. That's very good. That's a marvelous definition of grace because in these verses, what we're seeing is, is that God is showing grace to sinners despite their wickedness and sin. What we need to keep in mind is that grace is not merely unmerited favor. It is that, praise God. It's something you did not earn. 
Thank God for that. But it's more than that. Grace is favor given to hell-deserving sinners. It's, it's not just as simple as you didn't earn it, like you didn't have enough good works. It's that despite all of your wickedness and sin, and despite all your slavery to it and your condemnation, God rescues you anyway. That, that, that's the point. Those who once held a fist in God's face in, in total defiance, God takes that person and that same person that was sticking his fist in God's face and ready to fight him is now prostrate on the ground, worshiping God and giving glory to him. That's what grace does. And what happens is, you know people that are like this. You know people that hated God. And this was their testimony. They would not set foot in a church. They, would not, they hated Christians. They didn't want to be around it at all. I mean, they were just given over to their sin. It was like terminal cancer, spiritually speaking. Toast. I mean, they're gone. They're so far away from God. Total defiance. And now some of those same people are pastors and missionaries and great men and women of God. Why? Grace. Because grace is powerful. It's unstoppable. That's what grace does. But there's more. Grace is not merely mercy shown to rebels. It's God working in us and for us in order to transform us into his image for his glory and our good. In other words, grace isn't just about getting you in to heaven, grace is about shaping your life and continuing to pour out goodness upon you. So what we, we've said here in the pulpit many times, and we'll continue to say it, that we never move past the gospel. And as I prayed, whether you're a Christian for five minutes or 50 years, we never move past the gospel. We only move deeper into the gospel. So if, if you're here this morning then, and, and you say, I've been a Christian for decades. Well, great. This text is meant to move you deeper into the gospel and a deeper realization that God is still at work in your life to move powerfully and effectively in you for his good, for your good and his glory. So here's the thing is that it's a marvelous thing to come to the realization that God is not going to hang you. Isn't that, isn't that a good thing? God's not going to hang me. Or, or give me the equivalent of the electric chair eternally. That's a good thing to know. All right? But it's even greater to understand and come to the realization that God wants to do you good for the rest of your life. In other words, he's not just saving you from something. He's saving you to bless you with some things. Chiefly, as Mark prayed, the Holy Spirit. Grace is not merely the absence of punishment. It's the presence of God's ongoing affection and love and care. God ran us down. He overtook us in his love. He tackled us in his love. And he drew us to himself. And now he is powerfully at work in our lives, which brings us to these next words. For by grace, here's the next words. You have been saved. Saved. Now, that's a word that is interesting because in our sort of Southern American church culture, that word gets thrown around so much that it's basically lost its meaning. You know, it sounds like in an old revival meeting in a Southern Baptist church, somebody needs to get saved. What does it mean? What does it mean to be saved? What does that word mean? Because it can lose its meaning. Saved from what? Well, I mean, in the context, save from everything we just saw last week, verses 1 through 3. Save from spiritual death. Save from our sinful nature, which was bound to the world, Satan and our own flesh, and supremely saved 
from the wrath of God. When God sends Jesus into the world, what God is doing is God is saving you from himself. God could rightfully and should rightfully pour his wrath upon every person in this room. So that if you are a Christian, what God is doing is God is sparing you from himself. He's sparing you from his wrath that could and should have been poured out on you, but instead was poured out on his son, Jesus, which is why he's our substitute, which is why you must trust in him. As Pastor Ted has said many times, you can pay for sin in one of two ways. Either you pay for it in an eternity in hell, or Jesus pays for it on the cross. But either way, sin is going to have to be dealt with and paid for. God does not leave any sin unpaid for. It will all get taken care of some way, either in you or in Jesus. And so God is at work in our lives. He is saving us. We are saved because God's wrath was exhausted upon Jesus. God's wrath was burned up, was consumed on Christ while he was on the cross. That's why Paul describes Jesus as the one who rescues us from the coming wrath. In Romans 5, he says, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? Those who trust in Christ will never experience the fire of God's wrath. Paul says, you have been saved. All right, now, that word in Greek, which we translate, have been saved, is very rich. Okay, so for you grammar uh, junkies, um, you know, I like to do this. We're going to have a little grammar lesson this morning again. Um, This is a perfect passive participle. Understand that for 98% of you, that makes no sense, nor do you care. But it is important, and what I want to show you is why. What that means is that it refers to a completed action that has present abiding effects. To help you understand the nuance of that word, you have been saved which is a phrase in English, but in Greek is one word. You have been saved. It would sound like this. Having been saved, you are now experiencing the benefits of that salvation. So there's something that happened at a point in time that continues to have effect in your life today. In other words, you don't just get saved and that's it. And that's kind of the the deal. No, you get saved and like a ripple effect when the stone gets dropped into the water, ripples begin to go out and out and out. And as they move out, the power of the gospel of God's grace continues to move powerfully in your life. So we're talking about a past action with ongoing results. The point is that our salvation was fully and completely accomplished by Christ on Calvary. And yet this salvation continues to work very actively in our lives today. Essentially what Paul is saying is there's kind of three aspects to this. We have been saved. All right. We are saved. And there's even another nuance. We are being saved. First, we have been saved. I mean, in this once for all completed salvation, we can say that we have been fully saved from the wrath and the justice of God that we rightfully deserve. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. As Romans says, the wages of sin is death. So we've been saved from eternal death. Salvation is a completed action. That's done. We're saved from that. Okay, but we are saved We are saved. If you're a Christian, you are presently in a state of salvation. 
Think about this. You're living in what we would call a state of grace. You're living under the umbrella in an environment, in a world, in a, in a house of grace. That's your state. You've been taken out of a condition of death and condemnation. And you've been transferred sovereignly by God's grace into a state of salvation. So that not only can we talk about salvation in terms of what God has done, but we can talk about salvation in terms of what God is doing right now in your life. It's something he's presently doing. To be in a state of grace means that we are presently enjoying the benefits of that salvation. Now, we have not entered into the full benefits of that salvation, but there's an already not yet we're tasting, okay? It's the odor of section. It's the appetizer before the main course. We're having our appetizer right now, and the main course is coming. And the main course will be when we sit with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we worship him, and we feast with him when we're free from our sin. So that's coming, but we are presently in a state of salvation. The third nuance is this, is that we are being saved. This is a slightly different perspective, but every day this work of salvation continues. God is in the process of carrying it to completion. That means that salvation is something we are meant to experience every day. What do I mean by that? I mean this. I mean tomorrow when you get up, you need to be rescued from sin's dominion. I mean that tomorrow when you get up, that you still need to be rescued from remaining corruption of our own hearts. I mean that tomorrow when you get up, you still need to be saved from the devil who's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. So we we need to continue to be saved in the process of being saved. So it's entirely appropriate in the morning before you even get out of bed to pray, Lord Jesus, deliver me today. Save me today. Continue to rescue me. Continue your work of salvation in me. Rescue me from the evil one. Rescue me from the world. And rescue me from myself. God continue his saving work in us. He does this. He continues it. And so we're currently being saved. You know what? God will continue that work until the last day. He's promised to do so. So to talk about salvation as a past action with ongoing results means that you are saved. You're in an unchangeable, okay? Try to understand this. An unchangeable state of God's favor. You're in an unchangeable state of God's mercy and acceptance in Jesus Christ. The devil himself cannot alter your standing with God. You are in a permanent, unchanging, eternal state of grace. And you will always be in that state. You are secure in the grace of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I desperately need to hear that. I, I need to hear that every day. Because you, you, can you imagine walking and living your life sort of with this, uh, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not mentality. Getting up every day wondering, you know what, if it, can, am I going to do enough things today? Am I going to please God enough or walk with him enough to where he's going to continue to love me? Or am I going to drop the ball? And, and, and when I drop the ball, he's going to say, I'm done with you. I'm done with you because you keep messing up. And because you keep messing up, I'm not going to continue to love you. I'm not going to continue to keep you in my grace. And can, can you imagine the spiritual problems that would emerge from a mentality like that? And so God knows this. And, and so because we, we, we don't want to live with a mentality that says it really depends on how good I am today. For God to keep me in his grace. And God doesn't want us to think that way. And so what God does is he says, I want you to be sure that what I started in you, I'm going to finish. Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful 
to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. I need to hear that. I need to know that. So there it is. I mean, we have been saved. We are saved. We are being saved. And all that is bound up in that one word, you are, you have been saved. But there's more. The passive voice of this word tells us that God is the one who saves. God is the one who saves. And we are the ones being saved. He is the first mover. He acted upon us. He breathed life into our cold, dead hearts and made them live. God is the first mover. And so God says in Isaiah 43, 11, I am Yahweh and there is no savior besides me. We read in Acts 12, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And then in Revelation, what do we read? Salvation belongs to our God. So it's his work. Jim Packer puts it this way. He says, there is really only one point to be made about the doctrine of salvation. It is this. God saves sinners. And then he unpacks that. And listen to these words. He's going to unpack those three words. God saves sinners. Here's what he says. God, the triune Jehovah, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of a chosen people, the Father electing, the Son fulfilling the Father's will by redeeming, the Spirit executing the purpose of the Father and the Son by renewing, that's God, saves, does everything from first to last that is involved in bringing man from death in sin to life in glory, plans, achieves, and communicates redemption, calls and keeps, justifies, sanctifies, glorifies. And then sinners, men as God finds them, guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, unable to lift a finger to do God's will or better their spiritual lot. God saves sinners. And we must feel the reality of those things this morning. What gratitude it should elicit to know that I have been saved. What joy should come from knowing I am saved. What confidence from knowing that I am being saved and what hope knowing that I will be saved. If we are saved, then we should be the most thankful, hopeful, confident, and joyful people on the earth. Well, that leads to our second statement this morning, and that is this. First is, by grace you're saved. The second is, the means by which we experience salvation is faith. It's faith, okay? We're just walking through the text. Paul says that grace comes through faith. But what, what is faith? Again, this is one of those words that is problematic in our culture. It's like we don't have a clear sense of what faith is. Everybody, I mean, even the secular world throws this word out in a terribly unhelpful way. Faith is, here's what faith is. Faith is a trusting reliance upon Christ and his atoning work on our behalf. It's a trusting reliance, okay? That's what faith is. Now, here's the question. What does faith do? That, if faith is a reliance, okay, what does it do? 
This is where our response comes in. By faith, we lay hold of Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring, okay, the hymn says, simply to thy cross I cling. But nothing in my hands I bring, all right? So faith is the instrument or the means of our salvation. We lay hold of Christ. We take him as our own. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, the consistent testimony of God's word is that faith is the instrument of our salvation. So I was trying to think of an illustration that even kids can understand to, to sort of unpack this idea that faith is an instrument, okay? And, and I think this is helpful, okay? Food, we need food to live, right? So if you don't eat for, you know, two, two months, three months, you're dead. You've got to eat to live. Food is a source of life. So, so we need to eat it. But, but the question is, how do you get that food in you? And if you're in a civilized society, uh, you typically get that food in you by using an instrument. And so we use a fork or use a spoon or something to that effect. All right? So we're talking about faith. Faith as an instrument. And we need an instrument like a fork to get that nourishing food in us. So if you were starving this morning and I put a plate of food before you, all right, and, and you, I mean, you were just famished. And then I gave you a fork and I said, eat it. And you ate it. You know, you just, you just, you know, we wolfed it down. You were so hungry and it was gone. And you get to the end of it. Are you going to stand up and say, praise God for the fork? Are you going to stand up and worship the fork? Or are you going to be are you going to just be blown away by the food that was provided by the giver? See? So, in the same way, faith is the fork. It is simply an instrument. Faith is the fork. It is the instrument by which we are saved. It is taught, this is taught in many places in the Bible. For example, Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 2, 16 says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I mean, could Paul be any clearer? So faith is the fork. It's the instrument by which we take Christ. It's the means Statement three, salvation is not the result of any human work or effort. All right, now we we need to hear this in our culture especially. We live in a Western individualistic idolization culture. We, We just, we're all about ourselves, everything we do, propping up ourselves, proud of our own accomplishments. And Paul says, listen, salvation is not the result of any human work or effort. And that smacks us right in the face. In order to stress that salvation is by grace alone and through faith alone, Paul adds, on the basis of Christ alone, Paul adds two balancing statements. He says the first is that salvation is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Look at the text. The point is that even our response of faith does not come from a human source. Even our response of faith is a gift of God. Now, now, just think about this. You have to think hard here. The second negative statement Paul uses is that salvation is not by works. 
Romans 11.6 says it this way. It says, If it is by grace, then it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It's not on the basis of works. What grace means in salvation is two things. It means that grace is not something you do and it's not something you deserve. You didn't do it. You didn't deserve it. But of course, this whole concept of grace is contrary to the spirit of our age. As I said, especially our American culture. I mean, just think about some of the old adages like, we make our money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. Just think about that spirit for a minute. And such a mentality is fine in our world in terms of money, but it's deadly when it comes to salvation. You see that? I mean, to say, you know, we earn it. You don't earn, you might earn your money, but you don't earn salvation. And if you transfer that in, you're in big trouble. Blaise Blas Pascal said it this way. He says, grace is required to turn a man into a saint. Grace is required. And he who doubts this does not know what either a man or a saint is. It's good. Said, that's said well. We must humble ourselves enough to receive his grace, to admit that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot earn acceptance with God on the basis of our works. We must agree with Paul that salvation is not our doing. It is the gift of God. It is not the result of works. Okay, so fourth, fourth statement. Salvation is a gift from God. In verse 8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The word this is very important. In fact, this word this that you see there is the dividing line between a man-centered gospel and a God-centered gospel. All right, I, I, want you to, I want you to just observe the words here. What does the word this refer back to? If you're going to take a quiz this morning, what does the word this point back to? Does it refer to faith? Does it refer to the word saved? Does it refer to the word grace? In other words, this is not, when, when he says the word, he says this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Does this mean this grace is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God? This salvation is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God? This faith is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God? What is he referring to? What does it point back to? Well, the answer is yes. All of it. The, the grammar is very clear here. And without going into the technicalities of, of the grammar, the point is, this refers to the whole package. Grace through faith, salvation. When Paul says, this is not of yourselves, the word this is referring to grace through faith package. The whole thing. P.T. O'Brien, great commentator on Ephesians, says, the context demands that the word this be understood to refer to salvation by grace as a whole, including the faith by which it is received. So Paul's point is that grace isn't from us, salvation isn't from us, and even the faith we exercise ultimately is not from us. In summary, this salvation, which is by grace through faith, is not from us. The whole thing is a gift. And, and, and what's the point of a gift? The point of a gift is that it comes from outside of you. You, you don't produce a gift for yourself. I mean, I, I mean I've bought a few gifts for myself. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. But what I'm saying is, you know, you, you get the point. The idea, the analogy breaks down to that point. But the idea is a gift comes from outside of you. All right? So 
It comes from outside of ourselves. Now remember, the heart of the gospel, as Packer said, is this. God saves sinners. Salvation is not of ourselves. We were children of wrath. We're walking in total bondage to the world, the flesh and the devil. But by an act of God's own sovereign and free grace, he takes it upon himself to rescue us. So even our faith, which we do exercise, you do exercise faith, is a gift from God. Now, for some of you this morning, that's a revelation. And even possibly for some of you, you're saying there's a little bit of resistance there. You know, I don't like this, what you're saying about faith being a gift. Because I always thought that I was the one exercising faith, and you are. But I always thought I was the one that was responsible to sort of seal the deal, right? This is kind of the way it works. You know, for the longest time, people will think things like, you know, God does his part, and then I come along and I add my part, right? And then together, I'm saved, right? God does his deal, I do my deal. But if that's your theology this morning, let me challenge you to think differently, okay? Based on this text, all right? I'm not trying to get you to think differently. I think the Bible's trying to get you to think differently, okay? It is true that God does his part, okay? But part of God's job is giving you faith, all right? Someone says, well, how can you say that? Look at, well, look at the passage here. The whole salvation by grace through faith package is a gift from God. And how could it be any other way? I mean, just think about it. How can a dead man generate faith? Can you go to a cemetery and tell a dead man in the grave to get up and to respond to something? You can, but nothing's going to happen. How can a dead man generate faith? Hear me, unless God first moves, there is no way a dead man can do anything. We're talking about dead, 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 totally dead. Dead men don't respond with faith. It can't be any other way. He's dead. So it must come from outside of himself because that's the whole point. It's a gift. The fact is, unless God regenerates us, we cannot respond in faith. So what he does is he opens our eyes to see our need of him. He grants us both the grace necessary to believe in him. All right? Now let me show you this in Scripture. Acts 18.27. Turn to Acts 18.27. This is Paul's third missionary journey. And we read this, Acts 18, 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. How did they believe? What prompted the faith? Grace. Philippians 1, 29. Let's look at Philippians 1, 29. Here Paul says, for it is by grace, no, sorry, excuse me, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer. That word granted is the same word for grace. It comes from the same word, charis. So what he's saying essentially is that for it has been graced to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe. What, what happens if it's not grace to you? What happens if it's not granted to you that you should believe? How about Hebrews 12, 1 and 2? 
Another very familiar text. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the what? The author and finisher of our faith. Who started your faith? Who authored your faith? Where did it come from? And and the text is clear, it came from God. But here's the problem, is that we just love the concept of free will. And I mean libertarian free will, just totally free to do anything you want at any time. Because the Bible does teach, okay, that we have a volition and a will, and that we make choices and decisions, okay? The Bible's pretty clear on that. In other words, you have to repent, right? You have some res- obey, you have some responsibilities, you can choose things. So we're not robots, nobody's saying that, it's not the theology here. But this idea of libertarian free will, that we can do whatever we want, is a, is a, is a misguided thinking. For example, we are bound by our nature. So... I think a helpful way to say it is you can do whatever you want inside, inside of your nature. Okay? In, in, the, in the boundaries of your nature, you can do whatever you want. So l- let me give you an example. Let's say you went outside and somebody said, you know, I believe I can fly. All right? And uh, that's a bad song, by the way. <laughs> uh, but you say, I believe I can fly. I'm going to go out and here we go. I'm going to hit the pavement and then I'm going to start flapping my arms like this and I believe I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to levitate and pretty soon I'm going to take off. Now you can believe that all you want, all right? But if you go out there and try it, you're not going to get up anywhere because you are bound by your nature. You can choose to do that. You can wish to do that. You can will to do that, but you don't have the power to do what you wish and what you will. You are bound by your nature. This is what the Bible teaches. We are enslaved to sin. And if you are in that boundary marker of your nature, you can't get out of that boundary unless God comes through his sovereign, regenerating grace and breaks the shackles off your arms and legs and causes your eyes to see. That's regeneration. And yes, regeneration precedes faith. It has to because dead men can't respond. So people love free will, though. They love this concept of libertarian free will. I can choose God anytime I want, and they just don't understand the nature of man. How much, let me ask you this question, how much free will did Abraham have in Ur when he was sitting under the hot sun and God came to him, bam, and called him out as a prophet? How, how much free will did Saul have on the road to Damascus when a blinding light came out of heaven and bam, smacked him down out of nowhere. Every example of conversion in scripture is always preceded by a move of God in a person's life. You say, well, I mean, come on. Every example, really? How about somebody like Lydia? Oh, wait, no, even Lydia. God opened her eyes, her heart to see. I mean, everything, God is always moving in us. So here's the thing. In summary, if you believe in Jesus this morning, that faith did not come from you. It was given from God. It's not because God did his part and you did your part. 
If you believe, it is because God in free, matchless, sovereign grace granted you the gift of salvation, which, hear it, includes your faith. It's what it says, what the text says. It is by grace, and this is the gift of God. Now, one final word on this. Understand that God does not believe for you, okay? I'm not saying that. He grants you faith, and here's the thing, you exercise that faith. But here's the point. When he gives you faith, he makes you willing so that you desire the thing he's giving you. So Here's the thing. No one comes kicking and screaming to God. We delight to come. And I was trying to think of another example for this. So Arian, my son, is a year and a half. And uh, he's 18 months. And he's at that stage where he is a terror at a restaurant. We go out to eat, and, and I was just like, you know, I've, I've, I've got my game plan because I know that while we're sitting there, this kid is, might just reach his boiling point and start screaming in front of the whole restaurant. And so I'm like, uh, you know, I've got, I'll just pick him up, take him outside, and do something else with him. And I'm like, Tina, just pack up my food, and we'll eat it at home. But I don't want to be that family that sits in there with a screaming kid and just thinks the whole world revolves around us. So I take him out. But he's like this at home, too. He's just, he's just ornery, you know? And he's, he's at this stage where you, you try to feed him uh, food, and, and at first he's like opens his mouth, and you're like, ooh, this is going to be good. And he's ready to go, and you stick it right up to his mouth, and he closes it. Like it's a joke, you know? Why are you doing this to me, man? You get, you get my hopes up. Like you're going to take it, and then you close your mouth. And then he starts doing this game where as you start to feed him, he'll turn his face, you know? And the you know, spoon hits his cheek. There's food all over the place. And then he starts flailing his arms. He's flipping food everywhere. Our kitchen's like a disaster zone. You know, we got to get like uh, some, you know, disaster control people in there to clean it up. It's a big mess. And, and I was thinking about this as an analogy, okay? Because we have to force feed him sometimes. The, kid, the dude's got to eat. So whether you like it or not, you're gonna, I'm going to find a way to get this food in you. All right? So eventually he eats. We get it. And it's just like I'm worn out and we're exhausted. But he gets, we force feed him somehow. We get it in there. All right, here's the analogy. People think wrongly that this type of teaching about salvation means that God is forcing us to be saved. All right? But that's wrong teaching. That is not what we're saying. Instead, here's what happens. God puts the plate in front of us as a gift. And our natural inclination is to say, yuck, and to turn our face and to close our mouth. That's our natural inclination. But, but here's the thing. God does something. When he puts the plate of food down there, he begins to create an appetite in us. He creates taste buds. He begins to cause our mouth to salivate. And we become hungry. And suddenly, for the first time in our life, we decide, ooh, this food that I used to always hate, it looks great. And I can't wait to get that goodness in me. Woo! And you go for it, and you're hungry, and you start eating, and you delight in doing so, and you consume it. That is what we're talking about. We sing the hymn by Isaac Watts, Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room, when thousands make a wretched choice and would rather starve than come? Do you hear the question in that? The question is, why was I made to hear your voice? And what's his answer? His answer is, "'Twas the same love that spread the feast 
that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. This whole idea of God's calling and irresistible grace is so misunderstood today. People say things like, well, if God is sovereign over salvation, then people who are going to be saved are going to be saved whether they want to or not. And people paint this picture like God grabs us by the nap of our neck and he takes our little arms and he ties them up behind us on our back and he puts pressure on us and he says, you're going to heaven whether you like it or not. That's crazy. That is not what the Bible teaches. God does not work like that. Instead, God changes our nature so that we want what he wants. He massages our desires in such a way that we want nothing more than to become followers of Jesus. When Christ accomplished our salvation on the cross, he not only purchased our pardon and our forgiveness, but he purchased the faith by which we would believe. Paul was so strong on this point. Because one of the greatest heresies, obviously, of his day was Pharisaical Judaism, which was teaching that right standing with God was on the basis of human effort and law-keeping. In other words, just do enough things. Just be a, be a good person, be a righteous person. Follow the law. And in order to overturn that, Paul says in verse 9, salvation is not a result of works so that no one can boast. Do you see the purpose clause there? Purpose is, I don't want boasters. So salvation is going to be all grace. It's going to be all gift. It's going to be all mercy. Because I don't want boasters. I want boasters in me only. That's what God wants. God, and God has the right to do that. You say, what? He's, that sounds like a megalomaniac. You know what? God gets to be that way because he's God. He's perfect. So, is it any wonder when he says, it is by grace you've been saved, is it any wonder that he says in verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good work? See, some people come along and say, man, I just, you're just killing me, man, and, and, and I, don't get any, I don't get any involvement in my salvation, and, and you're just, you know, you're killing me here with all this stuff. And, and they say, but at least I got verse 10. We are his workmanship in Christ Jesus created for good works. And then you miss the whole point. We are his workmanship created. This is creation language. This is new creation language. Paul is reminding us why this salvation is not of human origin. The word workmanship is like a piece of art. It refers to God's new creation activity. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 tells us if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Every Christian is handcrafted by God as a masterpiece of his grace. And here's the thing. He made us for good works. He did. Paul is saying that the faith that saves us is a working faith. We are not saved by faith plus works. We are saved by a faith that does work. And that's an important distinction. Obedience is a consequence or evidence of our salvation. The whole point about good works here in verse 10 is that when God's love is at work in the life of a believer, something happens that causes other people to see it and say, that's Jesus. Not, not even that's like Jesus, but they see that good work in our life. They say, that's Jesus. Man, that's Jesus. We represent Jesus. 
It's an extension of his life and ours. That's why Jesus says in Matthew, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. All right? Now that leads to our last statement. Because salvation is by grace, all human boasting is excluded. Human boasting. Okay? All boasting is rendered null and void. And here's why all of this is by grace. Because on the last day, God doesn't want boasting. He doesn't want people saying, thanks God for 75% of my salvation. You did three, three quarters of the work and I came in with a clincher. He doesn't want people saying that. And this is what I call the, what we need to get here is the SDG principle. Okay, SDG stands for Soli Deo Gloria. God's glory alone. To God alone be the glory. Why? Why why is this so important? Well, God says in Isaiah 42, I am God and there is no other. I will share my glory with no one. No one. See, this thing I love about the doctrines of grace is they're all about God. (laughs) You see, and, and, and that's the point of, that's why we are, that's why we teach these things because we just want to be faithful to the Bible. The Bible's all about God, so we want to be all about God and not about ourselves. The SDG principle is simply this. It has to be by grace so that boasting is excluded. Why? Romans 3.27. And then Romans 8. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And he's not going to share that glory with you. And he's not going to share that glory with me. And he's not even going to share that glory with his church. He will keep that glory to himself because he alone is worthy of all glory throughout the ages. So in a group like this, it is good to be reminded that you were not saved because of anything you did to earn God's favor. You were not saved because of anything you did at all. It was sovereign grace from start to finish. It was an act of pure grace that God opened your dead heart to receive the gospel. Give him praise for that. It was an act of sheer grace that God gave you the faith to believe the gospel. Give him praise for your faith. And because of that, Paul says in Galatians 6.14... That there is only now one place for boasting, and that is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Period. Man simply cannot contribute to the source, the ground, or the means of his own salvation because God demands getting all of the credit and all of the glory. So here's the question, what do you bring to your salvation? What do you bring to your salvation? I'll tell you what you bring. You bring your sin. You bring your dead, broken, cold, sin-ravished, and enslaved self to God, and you beg him for mercy. That's what you bring. You bring your wicked, hell-deserving, unrighteousness, and filth before God, and you fall on your knees, and you say, is there any grace for me too? And you know what God says? He says, well, yes, there is. There is. There's enough merit in the atonement of my son to pay for the sins of 10 billion lost world, worlds of sinners. He says, the only thing that is required of you is to fill your need of me. To fill your brokenness. To fill your helplessness. Does anybody feel that need this morning? Anybody feel their brokenness? Recognize your need of that.
and see that there is only one Savior who can meet your need. The Bible says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so if you're a sinner this morning, you're in a good place. Because Christ came to save sinners. He's an expert at saving sinners. That's his job. And guess what? He's the only one doing it. And he'll do it for you today. Go to the one who died for sinners. Go to the one who was raised for our justification. Go to the one who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Go to the one that has power and willingness to save you. And all who come to him, trusting in him, will be saved. This is the free offer of the gospel. And what's happening right now, hopefully, is that while I'm preaching and extending to you the free offer of the gospel, that at the same time, simultaneously, God is bringing regenerating grace. God is bringing power from his throne. God is opening eyes to cause you to see that, yes, if you will respond in faith, that he will save you. See, I can't twist your arm into the kingdom, but I can preach and I can tell you that there's a savior willing and ready to take you in. And if God is bringing you grace to see that, then respond to him right now and you can be saved and you can take him as your own. Somebody needs to do that this morning. In a room like this, I know somebody needs to do that this morning. Okay, if that's you, why don't you do that? Don't waste another hour, another moment. You take care of that right now with God. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for your word. And we pray that you would now drive this deep into us and cause us, and I pray especially for people here who have not understood or experienced grace, that right now would be the moment of, of their conversion. And so pray that you would, even if there is someone in here right now who needs that, that you would be opening eyes to see and that you would be giving them the faith they need to respond. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is a gift of God. It is not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We love this word and we thank you for it in Jesus' name.